Well, that's awesome. The last church I was at, we had about three little kids, I'll tell you. You really knew when they weren't there. Dan and I thought I could probably introduce myself to you folks. Uh, Some of you may not know it, but actually I've got a fairly long history with this church going back to about 2002, 2003, uh, back when you folks used to meet in the senior center building. Uh, Any of you still from those days? Okay. Um, I became aware of the free church probably at the turn of the last century. And although I was never a part of the free church under Rock Stewart, uh, Rock has always been a mentor to me. He kind of shepherded me and guided me through the, through the process. Rock wanted to actually, about the time I was trying to figure out what this whole free church thing was all about, um, Rock was trying to step down from being a district super. And so I came in actually under Walt Petrosky and uh, came over to Colville to meet Mark Leash as Walt was stepping down. And uh, Walt was stepping down, and they were putting Mark Leash in as our district super. And it was at that meeting that Walt and Mark encouraged me to go ahead with a church plant with the Free Church in the Orville area. And it was during that time that the district sent me down to L.A. with my wife, and one of your first pastors, um, Jim Bridges, and so Jim and his wife, and I'm, I'm sorry, I cannot remember her name, and Ellie and I, we all went down to L.A. for about five days for a church planting boot camp, came back home and realized that everything I had done in Orville was, was totally wrong. But uh, as a result, um, we stayed in Orville for about, we stayed there for about four years, and that church is no longer an active church anymore. But during that time, we came over here both for, uh, to meet uh, Jim, and we brought several of our folks. That would have probably been in 2003. And then when Dan came on board, and I was finishing my ordination credentials in 2008, 2009, I believe it was sometime in August of 2009 that, um, let's see, that would have been Rick. Rick Weiner was our district super. Rock was here. Dan was here. We were all down at the, at the other building, and that was my ordination service. I don't know if any of you actually remember that or not. Good. Thank you. I know uh, Dan Christian did as well. So that's kind of my history with this church. And yet, uh, to me, I, when I think of this church, I still think of you down there. I've been here a couple of times, thought this was awesome, thought those windows there were awesome, and then Dan told me that sometimes you folks find the deer a little more interesting than his sermon. So I guess I, I get one of the, the good days. But uh, <clears throat> some things were going on in our life, in my wife and I, And about that period of time, God started putting a new... He he started saying, you know, John, you've got some new things to learn. You've actually 
got some wrong concepts going on in your head. And that's basically what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about uh, the book of First Peter. And we're gonna, I'm going to do a little summary of the whole book. Uh, I believe that a major theme in First Peter is suffering. Now, I realize that's not a popular subject, but I believe, it is, I believe it's timely. One of the uh, people I sometimes listen to from time to time, uh, David Jeremiah, who we listen to here in Sunday school class, and, and John Piper. One of the things I notice about both of those men is that while they might not call names out, they are more than willing to call out what they believe to be heirs of what you might call the prosperity gospel. And I've, that's always kind of resonated with me. I'm pretty much a meat and potatoes kind of guy, and the gospel is the gospel, and it should just be kind of almost a black and white thing. But it was amazing to me to find out in about 2003, 2004, that a whole lot of that thinking had rooted itself in my life, particularly regarding health areas. I have a pretty healthy body. My mother is 93. My father is uh, Crowden 90. His dad made it to 91, 92. His oldest brother made it to 95. I just feel like somewhere along the line, I was given good genes. I didn't realize that then, but now I see it was a gift. But what I saw at that time was I just was into this line of thinking, well, you know, you, if you do things right, you stay healthy. And uh, if you're going to get involved in a lot of things that you probably shouldn't, you may pay health consequences because of that. So I really wasn't prepared when we finally came to a, a real diagnosis of something that was going on in my wife. For years, she'd had what she would call these white finger things, where her blood pressure would just rise and she would have a, a feeling of uh, just everything was, was not right. She was fearful, but she didn't know what she was fearful of. And somewhere in 2003, 2004, about the same time I'm getting started in this whole E-free thing, uh, I've always been an evangelical. I graduated from Moody, had to do some renegade years, kind of get a little better acquainted with sin. I kind of finally came to the realization that I really don't want to know that guy any more than I absolutely have to. But he's got my face, my name, and he looks back at me, and uh, he's the old John. But ultimately, uh, as after I came back to Christ, I was married. I wanted to take up uh, those things that God had put in my life, even at salvation. I wanted to take them a lot more seriously. And so that's where we were in 2003, 2004. The upshot of all of this is that my wife was diagnosed with, number one, uh, a rare... Uh, condition that affected her adrenal glands. So every so often, these things would just go off the board. And uh, as we studied it, we found out that having your blood pressure go from normal to well over 300 
is not totally outside the realm of what's natural for this condition. As we got deeper into this condition, we, we found out that it was a symptom of a very rare genetic thing. In other words, she'd never done anything wrong. This wasn't because she smoked or, or was promiscuous or was obese, and I have problems with that. So it wasn't for any of that. She was born that way. On the day she came out of her mother's womb, she was already born that way. And she would pass that on ultimately to my second son. This condition is one in which if, if you test positive for this condition, your children have a 50-50 chance of also packing that. My second son just had his first child, uh, my first grandchild, and that kid is awesome, but he's also positive. And so we began to really realize that a lot of the stuff, I mean, I would say stuff like, well, okay, we're feeling a little bit of a cold, so let's take a little more vitamin C. A lot of that stuff worked for me, didn't work for her. We began to realize that a lot of the basic assumptions, not of our theology, but just how we lived life, were kind of on this idea that if you do things right, God is going to make sure everything else is going to go right for you. Well, all you have to do is go through something that is bigger than you can handle to realize what's wrong with that. To realize that God is bigger than your problem, even though your problem may be bigger than you. And so it was about that time that I was also involved with this church plant and got into the book of First Peter. Now, 1 Peter is literally all about suffering, and it's about learning how to accept things that you cannot change. In, in 1 Peter, he gives directions to slaves. They cannot free themselves. And so when we think of suffering today, I'd like to go a little beyond the persecution that Peter is directly addressing. And when we think of suffering today, I would like to direct your attention to those things that are going on in your life that are hard, that could more aptly be called a problem rather than just, okay, God really came through for us. And I'd like you to see that God is coming through for you even when you don't get the answers that you want. I'd like you to see that it is a biblical principle that God is not in the business of giving us the perfect life according to the way we look at it. God is in the business of shaping you, your personality, your attitudes, Virtually everything about you, God is in the business of shaping you to where you begin to look like Jesus Christ. Those things that contribute to God's program are good even when they seem to be bad. Even when you are stuck with a health problem, 
a financial problem or a relationship problem. They have a positive aspect. God truly is on your side as long as you are going where he wants you to go. He's always there for you, but his goal for your life may be something very different than what you think your goal is. Ultimately, in my wife's case, we found out that not only was her, her uh, genetic pre-programming of a type that would exhibit itself in this adrenal thing, it also had uh, another symptom could be and was in her case a very deadly form of a thyroid cancer that's very rare. It's very rare and... In her case, it had metastasized before we even knew that it was there. We found two studies, 10-year studies had been done on this. The mortality rate of the first one, I think, was 80%. The mortality rate of the second one, 10-year mortality, was 85%. So we were looking at having her beyond 10 years at somewhere between 15 and 20%. And that's where we lived from 2004 until now. Now we're beyond that 10-year series. Her cancer seems to be not growing, but not going away. We live with it every day. And uh, we just feel like we had a 100% chance of being in the lucky 15%. But I'd like to just share, look at First Peter, first look at the book as to what Peter is doing, I do believe that the main theme of First Peter is suffering. Uh, <clears throat> when he discusses servants or slaves in chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, he's, he's addressing those who suffer for making moral choices from God's point of view, and when they patiently endure unjust treatment, they find favor with God and then ultimately fulfill their purpose of imitating Christ. Verses uh, 18 through 21. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, he's addressing victims of slander and he tells them they are to be more concerned about their conscience than their reputation. You know, that's almost... We all believe that's true, but I think we walk over our conscience. And if somebody else attacks our reputation, we're ready to fight. Am I right? Yeah. We're way more worried about our reputation than our conscience. Peter turns that around, and he tells them that they need to have a good conscience when they're being slandered. And he says that actually, if you're consistent there, even your accusers will sooner or later want to know the reason for your hope. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, if you want to uh, uh, play armchair theologian, get five commentaries. Look up what these guys say on the first four verses of chapter 4. I like to boil it down to the simple stuff, may not hit every word, but Peter is actually telling us that suffering can help you in your battle for purity. This is particularly true when you have have, uh, 
engaged in some form of moral or spiritual purity, uh, impurity, and all of a sudden there are consequences there. Pretty easy to see how suffering can help us in our battle for purity. But the truth of the matter is we all are embattled for a personal pure walk with Jesus Christ each and every day. We fail from time to time, and sometimes God steps in and uses suffering to get your attention. And then finally in chapter 4 and 5, he talks about suffering in actual persecution. And this is at a time when Nero is beginning to ramp up his war against the church of Jesus Christ. It's a point of uh, a time when Nero would even go so far as to arrest Christians, cover them in tar, cover them in pitch, throw a garden party, and uh, literally put them on a pole, light them up for party lights. So how would you like to be a Christian who had an opportunity to light up someone else's life? That really happened. That really happened. It was happening then as Peter is writing this letter. The second thing in chapter 5, he brings his letter to a close and shows how ultimately it is Satan who is behind all persecution of believers. That it is Satan is the ultimate author of all of this. So I would like to look, taking this and recognizing, number one, that it might look like we are kind of dumbing down the scriptures to take scriptures that were written to people under intense persecution and say, okay, let's apply this to a health problem that just won't go away. Let's apply this to a financial problem that uh, you did the best you could, but the problem's not going to go away. Let's talk about a relationship problem. I love my son, I love my daughter-in-law, and I'm really in love with my brand-new grandson. But just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a grandma who has an 11-year-old grandson, and her son and daughter-in-law have totally shut her out. She's never been able to hold that grandchild. Some of you may be wrestling with relationship issues, It doesn't matter how much you bend over backwards. It doesn't matter how much you apologize. It just doesn't go away. Is God still involved in those things? The reason I take these intense persecution verses and apply them to those things is in each one of these, we see that there is a principle. This principle is that God is more than willing to use suffering to accomplish changes in you. And he never apologizes for it. He never apologizes for it. Now, this is a pretty logical conclusion if you truly believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the sovereignty of God as long as I think there's a way of escape from my problem. But I wrestle with the sovereignty of God when I find that my problem is just pressing down on me and will not go away. Which guy's right?
Well, sometimes God comes through with an absolute miracle, doesn't he? Some people like to say the age of miracles is past. Well, I I believe the age of the apostles is past. I believe the age of the miracles is yet to come. But the God of miracles is always present. Past, future, present. The God of miracles is always, always here. Don't give up on praying to the Lord for a release from your problem. But at the same time, recognize that he may have an entirely different program for you. I want to look at th- take a little closer look at three portions of Scripture, one from Peter, one from James, and one from Paul. And I want us to see how God can use suffering in your life, whatever your problem is. You might have a problem that makes mine with my wife who has outlived the statistics of her cancer might look small. You may have a problem that, that is so huge that what I described to you is small. But what you might not realize is that God is using that thing in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. First of all, let's take a closer look uh, to 1 Peter, starting in about verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, and go through verse 9. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The thrust here in this particular passage, because I'm going to change gears as we look at another one, is not to rejoice because we have trials. You see, we rejoice in our trials. That's what he's telling us. And, he's, and it's interesting that when Peter writes this here, it's not written like a command. It's almost written like he's describing their experience. You can do it. You will do it. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. So what are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in our salvation. We're rejoicing in our salvation. In no way would I want anything I said today to downplay or diminish some very real problems that may be going on in your life. But if your problem has overshadowed your relationship with Jesus Christ for any length of time, I would hope that something I would say today from the Word of God could free you from that. And you could see that it's not that your problem is small. It's that this salvation that we have is so rich 
It's so huge and it is so great that the life that is waiting for us will make every aspect of this life uh, just as probably insignificant as a surgery on a newborn baby that if he, he, can't, he can't live without it, but when he gets it, and if you've seen these little ones when they're newborn, it just seems like the healing cells in their body just go faster and faster and faster. Uh, something that would take me weeks and months to recover. Uh, my grandson was on the road to being just everything he was supposed to be within two or three days. I think we need to understand that those hard things that we deal with here are small only. They're small only when they're compared to the salvation we have. What an awesome thing that salvation is that God himself, through the person of the Son, would literally leave glory, literally leave glory, come down to be born amongst us, to wrestle with the same physical problems that we wrestle with, uh, to live in a world of sin even though he knew no sin, that he would do all of that for me. That's what Peter is telling in the first chapter, telling the believers to rejoice in. And he said, you can rejoice in your trials because of this. So the first place I want us to look is that we rejoice in our trial. Now I realize if you just um, got some terrible news in the past week, that might be the biggest thing in your life right now. But if you belong to God, and if he belongs to you, then there will come a time when your distress will be limited. There will come a time when the problem will still be there, but the amount it distresses you will diminish, and you too will greatly rejoice in your salvation. So the first thing is we can rejoice in our trials. We have that ability. Might feel a little distant today if you just learned how big your trial was yesterday, but it is a period of time that will come to an end, and your value, your relationship with God will again move to the forefront of your life. When compared to our salvation, which we rejoice in, these trials are not worth mentioning. But when we see what these trials do, then they also result in joy inexpressible. So let's take a look at what trials do. I'd like to go to, to James. And James, I, I think, James says it's time to learn to enjoy your trials. Look what he says. Consider it joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials. That's not what Peter said. I think James takes us to the next stage. Really being able to appreciate what God is doing with that trial. Not just the problem of the trial, but what God is going to do in your life. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith 
produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, every time you get to a point where you just say, I can't take it anymore. You ever been there? You ever had one problem after another just come and hit you and hit you again and again and again? I remember before Ellie went through her first surgery, which was actually the most life-threatening, because if those uh, adrenal glands had done a, a spike up into the high 200s or 300s, well, she's on the operating table, she would have just bled out like that. We were well prepared for that. We were warned about it by our surgeon. He had her on a super-duper um, blood pressure-lowering medicine. Uh, he had been monitoring her, but in no way were they letting us walk into that without knowing the, the worst-case scenario. And so they've got her... Uh, stripped down and in one of those little gowns that tie up in the back, seated in a wheelchair, and they're ready to take her away. And so, for all we knew, that was the last time we were going to see each other alive this side of heaven. And so, later on, she's sharing with me. She said, I was just so afraid. I was just so afraid as they took me farther and farther down the hall. And you were back there. And she said, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God moved in. She said, I could just literally feel his love just totally surrounding me. And it wasn't one of these things where he says, okay, you'll make it. She just felt love. Now, that was her experience, and it was amazing years later, because all of a sudden, once we got involved in this church thing, remember, that's going on at the same time. We were dealing with people who had health problems. I used to be one of these guys who didn't even want to talk to people who had cancer. I thought cancer was, you know, kind of a, a leprosy, and sooner or later it would rub off on me. Well, now we're being sent into homes of people who are wrestling with cancer. I talk a little bit, step out of the way, uh, let Ellie begin to share. And all of a sudden, bridges are being built. That thing, which was our biggest problem, was also that thing that allowed us to walk across the bridge into the life of another person who is getting ready to pass on into eternity. That particular experience that Ellie had of feeling the presence of God totally surround her. That resonated with a lady who we became her pastor the last four months of her life as breast cancer ultimately took her. We did not bring her to Jesus Christ, but we brought her back to Christ. I believe she was saved in her teen years, uh, as Ellie was sharing her experience, she said, oh, my goodness. She said, I felt that when I got baptized. I said, oh, I didn't even know you, were going to, you went to church. I'm, well, she said, no, from the time I got married, we, we never went to church, me and my husband. And her husband's dying of cancer, and so we kind of got to minister to both of them. But this lady, it was amazing. It was just like a flower that had been planted, and then somebody forgot to water it. 
and it looked dead. It looked dead. But as we started getting into Audrey's life, you could see the Spirit of God just keep, keep coming to the point that on the last day of her life, the last 24 hours of her life, I was in her hospital room on a Monday night. Uh, she was just totally wiped out. And she, I said, Audrey, how do you want me to pray? And she wouldn't say it, but I knew she wanted me to pray that God would heal her. So I did. I have no problems doing that. I have seen God heal. I don't claim to have the gift of healing. I just believe that the prayer of faith for healing is one of the most underused strengths that we in the body of Christ have. Don't claim to be a healer. Came back in the very next morning to see her. And it was like seeing two persons. She was glowing. She was up. She was just really great. And I walked in there, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty high. I said, wow, that was a pretty powerful prayer last night, wasn't it? And then I got the surprise of my life. She looked at me, and the smile went off of her face, and she said, yes, it was, and I'm not too happy about that. What do you say? Amen. What do you say? I mean, she's the one that's dealing with life and death, so she's the client. She's right. I just let it slide. Ellie went in to see her that night and uh, read to her a little bit. Then her family came in to see her Tuesday night, and uh, they were with her. Ellie left when the family came, and then when the family went out to grab some lunch, when they came back about 45 minutes later, Audrey had passed. She was gone. I was told about that on Wednesday, and all of a sudden, I knew why that comment had been made. Somewhere between that prayer for her healing and the next morning, that lady really laid a hold of what God has for us. And if she could get this idiot preacher out of the way who was praying to keep her here, she could go there. You see, God takes your problems and he will give you not always a solution to it. We live with that to this day. But we have something we never had when we talk to people about health challenges. And we can get down to the nitty-gritty with them in a way we could not before back when, well, you know, if you live everything right and if you understand vitamins and take the right vitamins, well, you know, good health is just going to happen. Well, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. If you have good health, be thankful for it. It's a gift. But recognize that your good health alone is not the sign that God is blessing you. You know what's the sign that God is blessing you is? You have opportunities to share his word. You have opportunities to see other people's lives changed because of you. And ultimately, if you look in the mirror, you won't see it. But at some point, other people, when they think of who is Jesus Christ, some aspect of you, Maybe it's the way you make good decisions. Maybe it's the way you can forgive. There should be something about Jesus Christ in you that other people 
can see. And that happens as much because of the things we suffer. If you can just open your mind to it, that happens as much because of the things we suffer as it does when we get that last-minute miracle. I don't want to step away from the reality of those. But it is through these things, it seems to be that it's God's favorite way of proving our faith, as Peter says. You ever, If you do a word study on that, proving your faith, uh, Peter, in the New American Standard, uses the word the proof of your faith. James, in the New American Standard, talks about the testing of your faith. Now, the New American Standard, various trials, various trials, Peter and James. But James uses the word testing. Peter uses the word proof of your faith. It's the same Greek word. So I think in terms of proof testing. Do you know what proof testing is? If, if you deal with metal and particularly stress, like Peter talks about gold and fire, that's metal and stress. If you deal with metal, um, things that are sold, things that uh, maybe you're not just making to put on your own wall, but other people are going to have to trust in the manufacturing of it, it's good that items are proof tested. One of the first, I'm kind of a gun guy. One of the first things I think of is guns are proof tested. If you import, if you get a firearm that was built in another country, sometimes you'll look and there will be a lot of little funny marks that were, that were stamped on it. Those are the proof mark that is recognized in Germany or in England. But in proof testing, in all forms of proof testing, the one common denominator is that the item is stressed above and beyond the elevation at which it is to perform. If it's a chain, if a chain is proof-tested, and if it's a chain that's supposedly guaranteed to be able to hold a ton, 2,000 pounds, well, it'll probably be proof-tested at at possibly even 4,000 pounds, 3,000 pounds. The bottom line is proof-testing is for the purpose of showing that that item can perform its work. And that's what Peter is talking about when he says the proving of your faith. Now James comes along and seems to um, actually get down and, and even though he uses the same word, if you study the context there, he seems to be talking about the process of building that to where it can actually do what it's supposed to do. So both aspects are there. The proof and the process are in that word that is translated in, uh, in uh, Peter as proof and in James as testing. But it is the proof, the, the proclamation that this item will be able to do what it's supposed to do. And it's also in the process. So if we are the item, if we are the item... What are we supposed to be able to do? We are being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. Somehow, somehow we are to be able to either tell people about Jesus Christ, show some aspect of him, and we need both things. We need the process to get us there to where there's some reality. It's not just words we speak, but also 
people need to be able to see this. God uses those troubles to produce that in your life. And then when other people see them, they take it as proof. Remember uh, in Peter 3 where he says, they will want to know the reason of your hope. Your hope has to be visible before people are coming up to you and saying, hey, tell me the reason for your hope. I'm not saying we don't evangelize with a, with a specific gospel presentation. But the truth of the matter is, the church of Jesus Christ is losing the competition for the minds of America. And I think we need to become a little more authentic rather than just correct. Correct is right. We do need to call out error when we see it. But we need to live the truth. There is a certain kinetic aspect to the learning ability of each one of us. A lot of us, we we like to think our learning is visual. We read or it's auditory. We hear. But it's when you actually are involved in the process that you really learn. Read it here. Pray about it with the Lord. And then, and then expect that he's going to work it in your life. Don't be surprised if he gives you a problem that's bigger than your resources to handle or accept it. The third passage I would like to look at is written by Paul, and I call it exulting in your trials. Does anybody know what it means to exult? To exult... I had to look this up because I've always read that and I I thought exalting. You know, we exalt Christ. We lift him up. But exalt is something different. Exalting is is you're just strutting around because things are really great. You have won. You you see this on on a basketball game or you see this on a football game. You see the guy who just barely made it to the goal line. And then he throws the ball up and he's prancing. He is exulting. So what does that have to do with with trials? Well, let's look at Paul here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. I'm right with you, Paul. I'm right there. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, I can really be with Paul. I want to exult about everything Jesus Christ has done for me. And and the comparison of where I am today to where I would be without him. I can really do that. But this idea of exulting in our tribulations... Is, is 
literally a new one for me. And then I realize that as Ellie and I have been willing to share some of our struggles, doors have opened, we have been kind of bragging on what God is doing because that's what exulting is, to kind of brag on what God is doing in your life. Uh, I can definitely see perseverance. I'm less apt to get discouraged and quit on things than I was 14 years ago. I'm kind of glad I didn't really understand this before we closed that church plant down because I'd probably still be there and I would never have learned that the giftings of somebody who gets in and is involved in primarily teaching and, and helping a church go over some problems are entirely different than somebody who's involved in the birthing of a church. The last church that I served in as an interim pastor, um, I just finished in November. Um, I was there for two years. The, the planting pastor, the one that you might refer to the planting pastor, uh, there was a pastor before him. They had about six people, and this fella basically took this church and kind of put it on the map. Uh, totally different set of gifts than I have. So I guess if I was into total perseverance when we first started this, I'd have probably never had sense enough to realize that, hey, it's time to shut this thing down. And, and so we would have been locked in there. And God has shown me that I'm an entirely different type of person in terms of where this pastor that I followed in this last church is a visionary. In other words, he can uh, conceive of something and he can cast a vision. And I, I mean that in a good sense, not a, a bad sense. In terms of getting all the details together and making it work, they needed me. I, I realize that sounds arrogant, but they had struggled for two years with their building plan. And it was all hopes and dreams. It was all on the whiteboard. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know, we can't even, we're going to have to figure out how we get this thing off the ground because we cannot help them learn how to call a pastor until we get this issue here resolved. And we decided that the two things that had to happen, they had to have a building plan on file down at the county, and they had to pour some cement. We thought if we could get them to that point, if they actually did those things, they couldn't go back to the hopes and dreams and rehash, rehash, rehash. They'd have to finish what they started. And so we got them to that point before we actually started the, uh, the pastor search committee. And as a result of that, um, they finished their dry finish shell, and they're on the interior now. But even though when we came on board with that church, there were two churches in that church. I call it the big footprint and the small footprint. Everyone in that church today believes that the building they are building is the one God wants them to. So, you see, it's, it's being able to understand what you can do for Christ, being able to understand what other people can do that you can't, but also recognize that God has been in the process of making you into the kind of person 
that can serve him today. And sometimes he uses those things that you're ashamed of. Sometimes he uses those things that you just would do anything if you could change that about your life. So I guess my goal for you today would be that you ask yourself how much I am coasting through the Christian life on a bunch of preconceptions that have seemed to work for me, but they're not really biblical, and how much I'm willing to submit to whatever God is going to lay into my life today. And whether it's good, bad, or ugly, I'm going to say, how can you use this to move your kingdom forward or to make me more like Jesus Christ? That's really all I would have to say other than this one thing. I used to think in terms of hardships as woodshed theology. And uh, I, I was under a pastor who used this. He was very gifted in the spiritual gift of manipulation. And uh, if he could get you in the woodshed pretty quick, he could get you to do whatever he wanted to do. They weren't wrong things, but the method was, was wrong. And so eventually I became very skeptical of woodshed theology. The truth of the matter is, though, some of these problems, God may be disciplining you simply because there's something wrong in your life. How do you discern between these? Very simple. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, but what else? Rebukes. Rebukes. If your problems are a corrective discipline in your life, you know. God has committed himself to letting you know what he is punishing you for. I've run into so many people that kind of, I don't know why this is here. Could God be punishing me? Well, truth of the matter is, maybe he is. Or maybe it's a whole different kind of discipline. He's working discipline into your life. There are three verses that I'd like to point out in terms of what I call uh, biblical woodshed theology. Um, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And you have not forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. If there's no reproof in your life, do not be very quick about assuming that God has just got you in the woodshed and he's punishing you. He, he will do that, but he'll also let you know why it's there. This is, this is also in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom he loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Never buy into woodshed theology as the chastening alone. There's got to be reproof or you have misinterpreted what's going on in your life. And finally, in Revelation 3.19,
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. You'll notice that God's reproof in all of these verses, there's some reference made to it, either at the time of the discipline or even before. If, if you're deliberately disobeying God, and he's getting ready to discipline you for it, when that discipline falls, you will know. If you don't know, don't be too quick to put yourself in the woodshed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Father, I know that uh, this has been as much a, a topical sermon as a textual sermon. I know that the illustrations have been simply from my own experience. And I know that all too often we try to use our experience. Sometimes we measure ourselves against other people's experience and either become arrogant or, or just totally unable to perform. But, Father, I know that each person in this room has some problems that have really got them challenged. They might not even identify with some of the things that I shared. But I think of the day when you let me know that certainly Ellie and I did not have a monopoly on trials. But I thank you too, Father, that you can actually take us from just dreading a trial. But we can see your hand through it. We can walk towards a future that we don't really know what tomorrow holds. But we do know what the day after tomorrow holds. Father, if someone is here and has received really shattering news in the past week, and right now these words seem empty, Father, help them as they go through this period of shock and pain and uh, sometimes just a, a severe depression. But Lord, through your Holy Spirit, make sure that that is a temporary thing. Make sure that in a few days they begin to take a bigger perspective on what you've dropped in their lap in the past week. And I pray, Father, that you will drive them to your word. I pray that as they get into your word and study your word and recognize that they've always had, uh, even before this, recognize they've always had a, a real relationship with you, but now you are deepening it and you're challenging them to challenge some of their preconceived ideas. Father, I ask for that person and ask that through your Holy Spirit, this would be so. In Jesus' name, amen.